In the winter of 2018, I found myself spending the holidays in Japan. This was around the time I released the Pagan Christmas episode for the podcast, which I had recorded a week prior and released to the masses from the faded pastel-colored confines of what was supposedly a former love hotel. But the lack of central heating, the shabby 80s interiors, and most of all, the uh, crusty old bloodstains underneath our mattress told me that the former bit about the love hotel was a bit of a white lie. This seemed to be a place where sordid secrets are probably being forged on a fairly steady basis and that the Airbnb part was probably more something like a side gig, tapping into the market of morbidly curious tourists such as my wife and myself. And to be sure, there was no shortage of morbidity in our little slice of Tokyo, which wasn't quite glamorous enough to make it as a red light district, but shady enough to attract the sleazebags. Right around the corner, there was a horse meat grill, which would have made for a highly pagan holiday meal. But alas, I did not get the opportunity to indulge arcade a block over had seen better days, with its dusty beige carpet and chain-smoking patrons, who blew their money on mechanical horse races, and when the night descended, aging men in suits walked arm-in-arm arm with suspiciously baby-faced girlfriends in the neon light of isekaias, laundromats, and go-go bars, while in my pastel-colored Japanese wizard's tower, from the questionable comfort of a veritable sponge of mysterious bodily fluids, I was publishing the Brute Norse Holiday Special, drinking deep from my canned Suntory highball before I went out and got falling on my ass drunk, asking random strangers about Bozo Zoku biker gangs and Japan's antics during the Last World War. Culturally, I find Japan very interesting, but not for the most usual reasons. I like to joke that I'm sort of a connoisseur of Japanese grimness along with my wife who studied Japanese in college, specializing in atomic bomb literature, and helped me understand some of the things that otherwise seemed very perplexing to me about Japanese society and culture. Maybe growing up countercultural in the rather conformative Scandinavia gave me an appreciation for Japan's own juvenile delinquents, such as the aforementioned Bozozoku biker gangs. It is also impossible not to be fascinated by the ups and downs of Japan's unique history, and in my case, it's often overlooked prehistoric roots. As much as the much more recent and very fateful Showa period, which marks the rule of the Emperor Hirohito from the 1920s to the late 80s. A strange period of contrastive cultural change. Movies about gangsters in white turtlenecks, baseball, weird and dreamy pop music, kamikaze pilots, nuclear devastation. The dramatic ritual suicide of gay authors, discussions about Japan's self-understanding, and bleak retrospective visions of the future. It's an economic success story, haunted by the ghosts of overworked salarymen who dove in front of incoming subway trains, drunk, off of the bottomless suntory highballs that their bosses forced them to drink, in a way sacrificing their lives for a particular vision of Japan. As a strange capitalist echo of the darker chapters of Japan's recent history, as many of Japan's old kamikaze themselves must have emptied bottle after bottle on the eve before they climbed into the cockpit one last time and told their peers to meet them beneath the chariot trees of Yasukuni, a sort of Valhalla near Tokyo's Imperial Palace, which serves as the beyond earthly dwelling place of millions of Japan's deified war dead, 
and remains a source of much cognitive dissonance, both in Japan's self-image and the image of Japan abroad. But this is not first and foremost the period we shall be discussing in this episode, though I cannot promise that it won't be revisited in the near future of the podcast. As always, my name is Erik Sturrsen, here to tell you about the Iron Age in the land of the rising sun, on the 23rd episode of the Brutnors podcast, where we walk backwards into the future. on the hunt for new material for Brute Norse, but what could I possibly find for the podcast in Japan? Peering down at the salaryman and the schoolgirl walking the street below, I think to myself, these people don't know anything about Vikings. In fact, if I rudely intervened in their date and asked them to describe a Viking for me, they would probably paint the image of a big, sturdy table decked with shrimp cocktails and omelets, because, for whatever reason, to most Japanese people, the word Viking or Bikingu in Japanese doesn't refer to Scandinavian pirates of the late Iron Age, but to an all-you-can-eat buffet. Speaking of which, everything you've heard about Japanese cuisine is probably wrong. The food is either really fucking good or really fucking bad. Grocery shopping is pure hell. Fruits are expensive gift items. They slather their burgers in brown gravy like Danish people do. And there's a severe inflation of eggy dishes and microwavable, non-perishable meals all slathered in mayonnaise. So what do you do in the Japanese countryside if the only restaurant in town doesn't open till 5 or maybe doesn't open at all because it's the off-season? But you spy a 7-Eleven or Family Mart in the distance, so you leg it over there where it's either a pre-boiled egg from the cooler or a cold plastic-wrapped hot dog with some pre-applied mustard and ketchup dry from the factory. And don't even think about ordering pizza, because nowhere is pizza so recklessly raped as the land of the rising sun. Speaking as a Norwegian living in the United States, I thought that America was pretty bad on the fast food front, but it's got some pretty hard competition from Japan. The only way to really survive in Japan is to not go easy on the food budget enjoy local delicacies, stand an hour in line for a restaurant if you have to, or go wherever the salarymen seem at their drunkest and most content, and throw away your life on raw chicken sashimi. I'm only half joking, of course. If you only plan ahead a little bit and keep your eyes peeled, there should be no shortage of local restaurants serving up, say, ramen, which is good, filling, and reasonably priced. But even then, a son of the Old North can only take so many bowls of ramen before he reaches his breaking point. A breaking point only negated by the fact that I will never tire of drinking sake. Therefore, right before Christmas Eve, we jumped on the bullet train to Takayama, high up in the Japanese Alps in Gifu Prefecture, where my wife had told me that you can basically suckle the sake straight out of the teat of old Nippon. Needless to say, she didn't have to ask me twice. Well, actually, the bullet train could only take us so far. Stretches of the trip were spent on local, slow-moving trains that made for, actually, pretty good sightseeing, because wedged between the rice paddies every now and then 
I saw Kofun, ancient burial mounds. And we're talking about proper ancient, not what usually passes for ancient Japan. Japan is an interesting counterpoint to discussions of Western prehistory, simply because it is very different, but not so different that we cannot meditate on certain similarities. I found that going to Japan raised many new questions about how we as human beings cope with the passing of time and the emergence of a historical past. In part, I found that this was because Japan has been spared the exceedingly historicist perspective of history that pervades Western popular thought in particular. I got the gist that everywhere you go in Japan, the past is sort of all around you. Therefore, I find it necessary to actually, before I dig into the fascinating world of Japanese prehistory, um, give you an idea of what some of my issues are with modern Western ideas about the past as a sort of historian of barbarian ideas. Many listeners may question why Japan is a relevant subject for the Brute Norse podcast. Hopefully that will become clear in this episode and some of the upcoming ones. The simple answer is that Japanese prehistory and use of the past is a worthy subject in itself, and there are many interesting parallels that I would like to talk about. The more complicated answer is that, to Westerners, we cannot help but think of Japan as one of the many others, barbarians in the periphery, so to speak, even though no modern scholar would be caught dead using the term barbarian to describe foreign peoples. I, however, will do so without any sense of guilt whatsoever. Because if you are a regular listener to the show, you will understand why. With Brute Norse, I use the term barbarian in a positive sense all the fucking time. To me, the barbarian is a device or a symbol or mirror image or a lens through which we can gaze and find ourselves. The barbarian highlights the importance of knowing thyself, not by looking at who we want to be or who we wish we were or the masks that we wear, but by observing how people actually are. For sure, we have clear ideas about what we are, but to actually come to grips with things, we often have to step out of the echo chamber to see things in a different comparative perspective. If the Occident, the Euro-American world, represents the empire, then it sort of goes to follow that anything beyond that in time or space represents the barbarian periphery. The people that live there may be more or less respected, but they are barbarians nonetheless. What is the point of Brute Norse anyway, if not the humanization of barbarians? And if I can manage to do that, and you are able to put yourselves in the shoes of a barbarian, then maybe you might question the idea of barbarians in the first place. We tend to think of Japan as a strange place, but is it really so? Japan is strange to us because we're not Japanese. Maybe that, coupled with Japan's very unique cultural history, can help us come to terms with some of the strangeness of our own past, as well as allowing us to fantasize about worlds that were not meant to be, but could have been if things were a little different. But maybe this applies especially to those of us who feel an affinity towards or are descended from cultures that enjoy a somewhat limited legacy in modern Western civilization, so-called. Because, well, Western civilization is a curated work. That means that certain things have been omitted from this work. And I don't mean to imply that the Eastern civilizational narratives aren't subject to similar processes of selection, uh, but that will be apparent as we go along. In vast compilations of the works of the Western canon, they'll include things like the Aeneid, the works of Socrates, Dante, 
and Beethoven. The Kalevala and the Icelandic sagas receive no loving at all. Sometimes Beowulf is included, but I suspect that this is due to the fact that England did exceedingly well as a successor state to the Roman Empire. In this game of high and low culture, Western civilization seems negatively biased towards its own barbarian ancestry. If your culture hasn't spent the past 500 to 2000 years jerking off the Roman eagle, then forget it, you're toast. It seems that the very notion of Western civilization is often just a contest of classicism. Those of us who lack convincing Greek or Roman pedigree, the best we can hope for is some UNESCO status. That didn't mean, of course, that my own Scandinavian ancestors didn't try to kiss the Roman ass as well. This has been the norm for the past 1000 to 2000 years, where every learning institution insists that we are all Greeks and Romans, the civilizational gold standard for the entire Western Hemisphere, or so we're told. This makes us unable to, or, I don't know, unwilling maybe, to fully connect with or comprehend our own past. Often the bare-naked facts of the past insult our modern post-enlightenment Greco-Roman-derived ideologies, which includes the Coca-Cola-fied, slogan-based, woke state ideologies that you can always identify by the acid test of corporate backing. Now, the actual ancient Greeks and Romans may or may not be turning in their graves over such a comparison, but it does not change the fact that these two cultures are held accountable for all of Western civilization. They are the objects of constant admiration, in culture, learning, and politics, as if they were the sole contributors to Western society as a whole, and nothing else exists. Like it's a self-fulfilling, retroactive prophecy that has shaped the modern world through an incessant insistence on its relevance and influence. The implicit notion here is that those past peoples who lived in, say, mud huts in Schleswig-Holstein are less deserving of our admiration than those who lived in Roman villas. Even Norse medieval scribes were guilty of such thoughts. Snorri, the author of the Heimskringla, as well as the Prose Edda, took the Roman myth of an origin in the Trojan War and inserted it into the genealogies of the gods as well as the ancient kings of Scandinavia. By doing so, Snorri was getting a lot of different points across. For one thing, by inserting the Trojan War into the Scandinavian mythical past, he is tampering with the historical narrative. He presents the gods as powerful and charismatic human beings who wandered out of Asia Minor and served as founding proto-kings for Scandinavian society, which is exactly what the Romans thought about themselves too. That is, in the Italian peninsula, of course. By presenting this in a genealogical form and infusing it with names from the Bible, Snorri is saying that these are the facts. We have the same claim to civilization as any great Christian empire or kingdom has. Our ancestors may have been led astray, but we are not barbarians. Any indigenous traditions that tell a different story are basically the result of pagan false consciousness, because the true turn of events are accounted for in the Christian learned tradition, whose conduits are the Greeks and the Romans. I don't think Snorri was unsympathetic to his pagan ancestors, but I do think he was unsympathetic to the paganism that they practiced. There's a matter of nuance there. This was a barbarian past he could only justify through a Romanesque loophole. And I think I can see where Snorri is coming from because whether you're talking about Europe in the Middle Ages or about the current modern period, Western culture is saturated with barbarian guilt. It has created this impenetrable wall, this 
great divide between past and present that simply doesn't exist in many other societies. And then there's this weird superstition of progress that we're always moving towards something more noble, that one generation is more moral than the last, and so on. That to be a past person in some regard is always to be a bad person. This lack of perspective and understanding and solidarity with ancient man. When you take into account how this evolutionary historicist chronophobia poisons our relationship to the past and time itself, you'll find that it's no mystery why the barbarian past seems so strange and unrelatable to most of us. When I was a historical tour guide in Norway, it was important for me to get across exactly what sort of people the Norsemen were. They were people just like you and I, relatable on many levels, but their ways were also so exotic. Explaining the honor-shame system of Norse society, it would come across as so unreasonable to the modern mind that people might not even believe me when I told them and they could cope with it in different ways. Uh, they could think of the past as generally a dark and horrible place. Or they might accept that there are cultural conditions not present in our society that either enabled or made certain behaviors understandable. Among members of the public that showed the ability to have that level of nuance, it often helped to point out that there are other societies that they might respect where similar behaviors have been practiced in the past, one being, of course, Japan. Even if such a comparison is historically anachronistic and uh, perhaps made possible by the fact that we see Japanese people as strange and incomprehensible on many levels, despite the fact that they are also quite well regarded. It is comparable in the sense that Japan shared with Iron Age and medieval Scandinavia a high tolerance of and oftentimes a very strict demand for violence which was seen as entirely necessary and proper and natural in their given contexts. Then some people might say that Norse society never expressed an institutionalized violence in any way whatsoever that we can compare to, say, how Bushido was used to legitimize the behavior of the Japanese Imperial Army during World War II. They will tell me that similar notions could never even develop in the illuminated West. And that is where I must beg to differ on more than one account. Anyway, I'm getting way ahead of myself, so let's get back to ancient Japan. I'm sure everybody has a go-to image of that, but the thing is, what Europeans usually think of when someone says ancient Japan is not really all that old. When we conceive of geishas and samurai and, you know, the things that are depicted in the films of Akira Kurosawa, we're usually talking about the high middle ages up until the Wild West, cowboys and Indians, and all of that shit. If you really want to talk about ancient Japan, we have to go back to... Well, this is where it gets kind of tough, because... If you listen to the chronologies of ancient Scandinavia episodes, then you'll know that the borders dividing historical eras are somewhat arbitrarily drawn. Newsflash, different countries count historical eras differently, and Japan is no exception. Actually, Japan has a completely separate chronology that cannot really be compared to the one that we operate with in Northern Europe. In Europe and the Middle East, the Bronze Age starts at different times depending on which region you're talking about. Hell, the Bronze Age doesn't even start at the same time in different parts of Scandinavia. But how about the fact that Japan never had a Bronze Age ever? In simple terms, Japan skipped the Bronze Age and transitioned from the Neolithic period straight to the Iron Age. Basically, straight from the Flintstones to Asterix and Obelix. That is to say, 
If the Flintstones were Japanese, they would probably be living in the Jomon period, as the term Neolithic doesn't really apply to the Japanese chronology. In the Jomon period, which lasted from approximately 14,000 to 300 BCE, people lived in Neolithic-ish hunter-gatherer societies with some agricultural elements. But there are things that are idiosyncratic to the Jomon period that make it difficult to compare it with the Eurasian Neolithic. Despite the fact that the Jomon often settled in advanced and large villages, their agriculture was very crude, and they didn't really have any domesticated animals to speak of. However, the Jomon did make extremely complex pottery. The people of Japan in the Jomon period have been called the Jomon, but they did not call themselves the Jomon. Jomon is a modern term. The term Jomon literally means rope pattern, and refers to the magnificent and intricate pottery that the Jomon people produced, which was decorated by rolling cords of plant fiber around the clay. And because we live in a world of strange synchronicities, this is exactly how the prehistoric Indo-European and totally unrelated corded ware culture earned its name as well. So the Jomon lived a peachy life hauling wild plants and game for thousands of years until suddenly, in the 4th century BC, the Jomon were swamped by hordes of immigrants from Jutland, Saxony and Free I mean Korea and China. These invaders, known today as the anglo I mean Yayoi people, got really fucking snug in the period lasting from about 400 BC to about the 3rd century CE, to the point where we can now start talking about the Yayoi period which is the first era of the Japanese equivalent to the Iron Age. The Yayoi, not to be confused with Yaoi, which is something entirely different, brought wet rice agriculture, exotic animals, and metalworking to the Japanese archipelago. They also brought stricter social hierarchies and fancy new ideas about military elites. Not only are the Yayoi people responsible for kickstarting about 90% of everything we associate with Japan, the Yayoi account for an average of 80-90% to of the genetic ancestry of the modern Japanese, meaning that the indigenous Jomon people were more or less entirely replaced across mainland Japan. For a while, descendants of the Jomon may have survived in pockets around northern Japan where sources talk about the Emishi people. Etymologically, Emishi may be related to the Ainu word for sword, but the Chinese referred to them in contemporary sources as simply the hairy people, as opposed to pygmies and dwarves as they referred to the Japanese people as. And by the 7th century, the Japanese descendants of the Yayoi people wrote the Emishi people's name by combining the kanji for shrimp and barbarian, probably comparing the whiskers of the former to the mustaches of the latter. And while the Jomon seem to be all but eradicated at this stage, a higher degree of admixture remains in certain peripheries, and especially among the indigenous Ainu people of the northern island of Hokkaido. But going back to the first centuries of the Common Era, while it would be wrong to talk about Shinto at such an early stage in history, the Yayoi people were the first to formulate religious cult around an abstract set of deities called the Kami. In western terms, Kami are the gods or deities of Japanese Shinto their indigenous religion. But I try to avoid using this term since the traits and behaviors of the kami aren't always what we normally associate with gods in the western tradition. The kami were originally conceptualized as formless and invisible entities that responded to human invitations to manifest in objects of cult. A kami might temporarily take possession of a sacred tree, stone or artifact or communicate with worshippers through a medium. Etymologically, Kami is apparently related to ancient forms of words like corner, nook, and to hide in early Japonic language. And this ancient notion of the stealth or unseenness of the kami is something that carries into Shinto even today. 
Similar to much of the Germanic tradition, Yayoi priesthood was an office attached to political leadership. Yayoi people banded together in villages in strict social hierarchies under the governance of fiercely territorial chiefs who fought between themselves. These sovereign rulers were responsible for the administration of public cult and sacrifice. They oversaw religious rites at their estates and consulted mediums and shaman-like ritual specialists for guidance. A lot of this cult revolved around the fertility of the land. And so, many of these rituals took place either in the chieftain's own home or in granaries that served as architectural models for later Shinto shrines. But the kami didn't actually live in these places yet. That is, if you don't count the chieftain himself, who was often ascribed kami-like qualities. This is an early form of the Japanese marriage between Shinto and state power. Because the kami had influence and control over the natural world, they were seen as moody and unpredictable. Their ability to fuck you up was just as great as their potential to do good. And they didn't really give a rat's ass about human welfare. Therefore, sacrifices were made to coax the kami into a mutually beneficial deal to placate their anger and secure predictable agricultural conditions. Much like in Old Norse skaldic poetry, where the fertility of the land is sort of guaranteed by these strong military leaders who have exclusive contracts with the gods. And kind of sort of run the state's religion quote-unquote, from their own backyards. Another possible parallel here is the employment of female ritual specialists believed to possess prophetic powers. You know, I just want to put that out there. Now, in these first couple hundred years of the common era, Japan was known to the Chinese as the land of Wa. According to Chinese dynastic records, Wa consisted of roughly 100 tribes, but a rash of tribal wars in the 3rd century AD had reduced this number to 30, and resulted in the election of a shaman over-queen by the name of Himiko. In later Japanese chronicles, she goes entirely unmentioned, but scholars generally agree that she existed nonetheless, and she's also deemed to have been quite important. So the question is, what the flip happened to Himiko? And why don't the later Iron Age Japanese have anything to say about her? Well, we're kind of left with two options here. And you can tell me which one you find most likely. Either the scribes don't mention her because they had no fucking idea she existed at all, because she had drifted out of popular memory, which is entirely possible after three or four hundred years. Or she was purposefully omitted by those later scribes because they couldn't reconcile her existence with the legendary and ancient claims of the ruling imperial dynasty claim to go all the way back to the 7th century BC. Which, if you've been paying any attention at all, doesn't go very well over with the archaeological record. Now, whether Himiko actually existed or not is kind of beside the point. Her rule marks the transition from the Yayoi period to the Kofun Jidai, which literally means the Age of Ancient Tombs. This is very fitting, as Chinese records allege that she was herself buried in a monumental tumulus. And the Kofun period is so named because of the absolute abundance of these massive burial mounds popping up around Japan over the following centuries. Flash forward to December 2018. After spending a few days in the quaint but touristy town of Takayama in Gifu Prefecture, high up in the Japanese Alps, we step off the train in the much sleepier town of Hida, where our local guide, Mr. Iwatsuka, had come to pick us up. As I had already spied numerous burial mounds on our train ride, I felt compelled to ask Mr. Iwatsuka if he was aware of any other ancient monuments in the vicinity, hoping to maybe see a standing stone or something to that effect. 
After taking us for a quick tour of the town, our driver then pulled up to a burial mound, conspicuously tucked between the rice fields. Stepping out, it was clear to my eyes that I was looking at a keyhole-shaped tomb, which is a specific kind of burial mound belonging to the Kofun period. This particular one dates to the early 6th century, making it roughly contemporary with the princely burial from Snartemu in Norway, famous for its extravagant gold-handled sword. It is funny to think about the symbolism of swords in both of these societies, situated a world apart from each other, because to be a sword-carrying man in these societies, especially if the sword is richly decorated or garnished in a certain, maybe symbolic way, this wasn't just simply the attribute of the warrior, but the membership card of an exclusive club available only to select few members of society. They were pieces of art that spoke loudly about your social and political obligations, and often they were gifts from kings and chieftains whose retainers openly paraded their weapons as symbols of status and authority. Mr. Iwatsuke explained to us that this very mound once contained such a sword, with an inscription of gold inlay across the blade, characteristic of the period. I don't remember exactly what the inscription said, but it probably affirmed the owner's relationship to the king or emperor, and the governing Yamato court, which happens to be the same ruling dynasty as Japan has to this very day. Burial mounds were nothing new in the land of Wa slash Japan, but the Kofun period is called the Kofun period for a reason. Originally, burial mounds were only one option out of many on the menu of Yayoi funerary custom. Here we also see a condensed version of developments that parallel those of European prehistory between the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, in that there was a transition from communal tombs for entire families to tombs intended for single individuals. As the case is with Europe, this does seem to coincide with a more hierarchical society, since, as I already mentioned, the chiefs of the late Yayoi period banded together into larger confederations, though it is hard to determine exactly how stable or uniform these confederations were. It is, however, clear that by the 6th century, Wa, or Yamato as it is sometimes called, was more or less under the control of a central king or emperor. The fat cats of the Kofun period wanted to be buried in style. Not only did the mounds themselves increase in number, some of them also grew to be ridiculously large, easily dwarfing many of their European counterparts. I'm talking about mounds that are 400 plus meters long. For comparison, the largest mound in Scandinavia, Rockne's Mound or Rockneshoen in Norwegian from the migration period, is only 77 meters across. The variety of burial mound typology is also astounding. Some kofun are long, some are round, some are low, some are tall, some are square, some are terraced, some are octagonal, but none are so iconic as the keyhole tombs, of which I was looking at a miniature version. Their shape is exactly as the name suggests, and I can't even imagine the manpower needed to construct some of the larger ones using the primitive tools that they had access to at the time. Not in the least because many of them are surrounded by moats and form huge keyhole-shaped artificial islands. Supposedly, the water serves to mark it off as a holy place. But this accounts only for a few of the finest examples. 
As for the rest of the mounds, the sheer variety of shapes is sometimes explained as a sort of monumental language of social status. Presumably, just looking at the shape of your tomb said something about the kind of person you were and the position that you had in Kofun-era society. Basically, your rank in relation to the High King of the Yamato court. Of course, tombs of a certain shape or size were strictly reserved to the cream of the crop, who were believed to be descended from the gods themselves. The dead were laid to rest in magnificent burial chambers, sometimes decorated with carvings or frescoes, with food and drink and weapons and armor. And then, of course, the iconic Haniwa. Haniwa are votive terracotta sculptures depicting warriors, female shamans, saddled horses, mansions and granaries or temples, and even little tables, forming dioramas that simulate the grand ritual feasts that they entertained in their lifetime and carries them on into the land of the dead. The keyhole tombs often consist of several terraced levels which would be lined with such Haniwa statues, creating a spectral army surrounding the dead king or queen or whoever was laid to rest there. Some tombs, probably a little earlier and definitely belonging to people of somewhat lower status than this, were sometimes carved into the mountainside. I saw about 10 of these in a relatively unmarked spot in Kawasaki outside of Tokyo. In spite of the number of such sites across Japan, it is not too easy for a foreigner to find such monuments from the Kofun period. The general public doesn't seem to be particularly aware of this period of their prehistory, and it mirrors the way that prehistory is presented in the West as well. Now, truthfully, I can only speak from a Norwegian perspective. Many people simply don't know, from the top of their head, which periods precede the Viking era, which is, for all intents and purposes, the myth of origin of the Norwegian popular historical consciousness, as we have covered on the podcast before. While everybody knows about the Romans, many members of the Norwegian public simply don't know what the hell Scandinavians were up to in the meantime and will struggle to place the Viking period in a timeline relating to the more famous European phases of prehistory. It appears to be similar, but a little different in Japan. It's not that Japanese people aren't aware of the existence of this phase, but the Yayoi and Kofun eras, like the early Iron Age in Scandinavia, could be seen as a sort of unfinished product if you're looking at it from the vantage point of national mythology. It doesn't seem to fit exactly in with the more easily packaged, unifying image of Japanese cultural continuity. Just like it's difficult to imagine a Norway prior to unification, unless you see the Norwegian, Swedish and Danish ideas as somehow pregnant in the political chaos of Iron Age Scandinavia itself, which we have discussed at length in previous episodes. Now the sources of Japan's earliest political history are also foreign. While the homegrown medieval Japanese literature treats these periods more or less as the mythical past, the dichotomy between local and foreign views of Kofun era Japan isn't just something for the history books, however. It's an essential part of its history and culture. Since following a series of wars on the Korean peninsula, which was Wa's main source of iron ingots, Japan became the host of waves of immigrants from the East Asian mainland. Unlike the conquests of the Yayoi, however, these immigrants did not topple the existing order, but spawned the idea of a division between the indigenous and the foreign that persists into Japanese culture even today. Many of these immigrants from China and Korea were scribes, engineers, metal workers, diplomats, and bureaucrats. And of course, they were Buddhists. 
The arts and sciences of the Asian continent were in fact inseparable from Buddhism in many ways, leading to innovations in medicine, metallurgy, agriculture, among other things, while the elites adopted horse riding culture, literacy, and continental courtly customs. Much like Christianity in the European Middle Ages, Buddhism proved to be indispensable to the development of a more advanced bureaucracy in the Yamato state. But unlike Europe, where the church refused to reconcile with indigenous religions, the cosmopolitan and courtly world of Buddhism was adaptable to coexist with local indigenous Shinto cults. But as we can expect, the already established elites were critical of strong Buddhist influence on the court, since these old clans claimed political power based on their performance of rituals on behalf of the local community. This is when the clans descending from the original Yayoi settlers began championing Shinto as a more true indigenous cultural expression, whose mythology tied them to the land, the kami, and the heroes from whom they claimed descent. Here, it is easy to draw certain analogies to the last pagan kings of Scandinavia, who are praised in poetry as the personal guarantors of peace and agricultural success, precisely because they were military leaders descended from a noble mythological lineage, responsible for keeping the gods happy with sacrifices and maintaining holy places on behalf of the public. It also makes sense that these aspects are emphasized at a time where such authorities are challenged or brought into question by new alternatives. But the parallels don't really end there. Buddhism was officially adopted by the king of the Yamato court in the late 6th century, which infuriated many of his kami-worshipping subjects. Traditionalists blamed a rash of famine and plague on Buddhists who had stirred the wrath of the kami by adopting a quote-unquote foreign god. In reaction to these disasters, Buddhist temples were burned to the ground and their attendants subjected to public lynchings. Then, when a third epidemic struck, this was surprisingly attributed to the wrath of the Buddhas, resulting in the restoration of one of the formerly raised temples. I am immediately struck by the close parallel to conversion narratives from the Norse sagas, which also chronicle the mutual sabotage of Christian and pagan sites, and the apparent natural disasters that followed them. In Japan's case, this did not lead to one snuffing out the other entirely, it would be wrong even to say that there was no dialogue between the two, as kami worship took many cues from Buddhist ceremonies and started to build shrines in imitation of Buddhist temples. As history shows, Shinto and Buddhism came to develop complementary roles in Japanese culture. But what Shinto always lacked was a centralizing principle and dogma. One sort of centralizing principle came in the form of the court of the High King who already in the 5th century began handing out ritual specializations to allied clans across the realm. One clan might specialize in oracle services, while another raised ceremonial dancers. By regulating separate cults from the center outwards, the king could use kami worship as a means of extending territorial influence, so that even when Shinto cults didn't really speak to each other, they were generally associated with royal power. So gazing up at the small keyhole tomb in front of me, I couldn't help but wonder what sort of shit this guy saw in his lifetime. Considering that he died in such an auspicious though overlooked phase of Japanese prehistory, in the reign of Keitai, whom he would have called the Great King, whom imperial records allege to be the 26th Emperor of the Yamato line, according to the legendary imperial tradition. I wonder what he would think of these weird foreigners standing atop his grave in the far future of December 23rd, 2018 on the final reigning birthday of Emperor Akihito, the 125th Emperor of the Yamato line. I hope he would not take offense to my comparative graveside ramblings on the slopes of his eerie monument. 
airy, not so much for the fact of its, to me, peculiar size and shape, but for the presence of several modern graves placed smack on top of his own ancient resting place. As any archaeologist will tell you, it is not rare to find bronze and iron age graves reused long after the original inhabitants have faded out of memory. We find bronze age graves reused in the Viking age and so on, but such secondary burials are usually confined to the prehistoric, or at the very least, the pre-Christian age in Europe, while these graves could scarcely be more than a few decades to a century old. This would have been considered a severe breach in cultural heritage laws in most Western countries, though admittedly it took us quite a while to get to the point where these sites had any sort of protection whatsoever. I don't know enough about Japanese conservationism to even comment about this, but it adds to my impression of something else. In the West, intellectuals have insisted for generations on making us believe that the past is severed from our experience by the wide and impassable river of time. But we're never introduced to the idea that this river has a source, a spring where both of these banks of the river meet. And as a consequence of this essentially uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, the Western world tends to think that there are two kinds of people in the world. There's modern people like you and I, and then there's past people who are dead and were doomed to spend their lives on the wrong side of history. Whether or not my observations are misguided Western misconceptions or not, I simply don't think that this is how Japanese people view the past at all. Take for example the Grand Shrine at Ise in Nara Prefecture, the old heart of the Yamato polity. The Ise Shrine, or Ise Jingu, dates back to the 7th century AD, in the Asuka period, which immediately follows the Kofun period that has been the main point of discussion so far. A shared feature between Norse mythology and Shinto is the feminine personification of the sun, the main difference being that we don't have any evidence of the sun being an object of worship in itself in Norse pre-Christian religion. For reasons entirely unknown to us, the Yamato court decided to turn their backs on their original main sacred site at Mount Iwa to build a shrine to the goddess of the sun, rewriting it as the original Yamato holy place as if nothing had ever happened. The name of this deity is Amaterasu, and is hailed as the ancestral kami of the imperial dynasty. The choice of a solar goddess was fitting, given that Yamato defined its territory as all beneath the heavens. The strange part here is that Amaterasu plays the part of universal kami, which makes her stick out in comparison to the other deities of the Japanese pantheon. It comes as no surprise that she became synonymous with the cult of the imperial family and the much later establishment of state Shinto in its modern form. For historically obvious reasons, the emperor was forced to renounce his claim of descent from the goddess of the sun at the end of World War II. What's interesting about the Grand Shrine at Ise is that it is torn down and rebuilt on an adjacent plot every 20 years, at great expense exactly as it was before, down to the last wooden peg. Every time the temple is reconstructed, it is preceded by a ceremony of preparation that spans the course of 8 years. There's simply nothing about it that isn't shrouded in ritual, from the chopping of the trees to the refashioning of the tools and garments. Physically, the building is never older than 20 years at any given time, and it's been like that for over a thousand years and 200 more. For over 1200 years, the Grand Shrine at Ise has been perpetually young and old, 62 times reborn. Its eldritch 7th century architecture defies time and should not exist, but it does. But yeah, I can hear some listeners out there saying, 
It's not really the same building though, if it's been rebuilt 62 times. It's like the ship of Theseus, right? Let's say that you have a boat, and you repair this boat a certain number of times, until each and every original piece of the boat has been replaced. Does this mean that the last time you took it to the boat builder, you suddenly came back with a new boat, or is it the same boat that you always had? Many Japanese people would probably be inclined to say yes. The object remains metaphysically, if not physically, identical to what it was before. But we don't even have to reach for such a special example. My stay in Japan yielded a surprising array of supposedly old historical houses that looked as if they were built only yesterday. I think that many in the West would, for the sake of cultural understanding, accept this argument as something that is particular to the Japanese way of seeing things, while muttering under their breath that it's completely irrational because they've already decided in their heads that the 62 reconstructions of Ise Jingu are 62 entirely separate buildings. And anything beyond that is make-believe. I find it very difficult to agree with that line of reasoning, maybe because I don't think there is such a thing as unrelated events, and I don't believe in defined beginnings and ends of anything. It's akin to saying that your body is no longer your body because individual cells, depending on what they are, have died and been replaced dozens, hundreds, and thousands of times in the course of your life. Everybody knows that the pillar in the northern corner of Ise Shrine is not hewn from the same log as it was 40 years ago, and the skin of my hand is not the same as it was 15 years ago, but I still have the same scar I got when my friend shot me with his air gun. My hand is still the same. The mere fact of constant change has not replaced my bodily identity. What Ise Shrine does is that it tells us that we don't have to pick a side in a Manichaean division between times is and times was. It's a path out of a false dichotomy, something which most modern thought is entirely deficient of. Maybe because modern thought in itself is built on false dichotomies. Everything I've seen and read about Japanese culture seems to suggest the opposite. In fact, that the past is still present with us. It's a pleasant reminder that we don't have to accept the shenanigans of critical theory eggheads as if it were the final word. To put it short and sweet, our neurotic need to disassociate with the past is a quirk that makes us eccentric, not them. On that note, I should probably say thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Noise Podcast. And a special thanks goes out to my patrons for supporting me and my Scandi Futurist efforts. If you would like to support the Brute Noise Podcast, the easiest way to do so is by telling your friends and following me on social media. Or if you prefer a less abstract approach, you can also support me on Patreon or by buying a Brute Noise shirt in the Brute Noise Teespring store, all of which are linked in the show notes below. But be advised, patrons of the Brute Noise Podcast get a 20% discount, early access to the episodes, and an invitation to the Brute Noise Discord server. It also makes you very cool. Though that being said, this is Eric signing off. Arigatou gozaimasu. Hail Oksal.